This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening, You're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour. Here again, Sam Shandon. Welcome back to this special edition of the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and this is our mid-year real estate outlook. My guest this half hour is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-chair of the Urban Land Institute PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report, arguably the world's most widely read annual take on the real estate industry outlook. Earlier this year, Mitch joined me on the show to discuss the forecast for 2019 and, among, amongst other things, investor concerns about the longevity of this cycle, both economic and real estate. Halfway into the year, he's back to tell us how things are unfolding. Mitch, thanks for joining me again on the Real Estate Hour. Always my pleasure, Sam. So here we are. It's mid-year 2019. How would you characterize overall conditions in commercial real estate investment? I still still feel that they're very robust, as do the folks we talk to. We're actually starting the process of compiling emerging trends in real estate 2020. So we're out there in the marketplace continuing those conversations. And investors remain as optimistic today as they were a year ago. What's interesting, if you go back year after year, there's always one or two things looming on the horizon that give cause for concern in the eyes of investors, uh, whether it be where we are in the economic expansion, whether it be a presidential election, um, whether it be geopolitical uh, risks that exist around the planet. And now is no different. Um, We're approaching another general election in the United States. We have trade concerns. And what's interesting is when you step back from all of that, investors like commercial real estate for the same reasons today that they did last year, that they did the year before, and so on. And as wealth becomes available for investment, whatever the source of that wealth may be, commercial real estate and the real estate asset class more broadly becomes a resting place for that wealth. So um, uh, mid-year, maybe it's a big nothing burger in terms of (laughs) the news cycle bite here, but um, I I believe that they're as robust in their views of real estate today as they were um, six months ago when we last spoke. Yeah. You know, I hear investors uh, you know, will say from time to time that you know they're finding real estate pretty expensive. You know, office, multifamily, and the biggest markets in particular. Um, you know, some of them may be hesitating uh, given where they see pricing right now. Have you seen that impact deal activity at all? Um, you know, are there you know, prospective buyers on the sidelines who maybe are hesitating? I think what's interesting when we've looked at it um, upside down and sideways and backwards, as we like to. Availability of credit tends to be the biggest thing that will influence purchase decisions and availability of equity as well. So I don't think there are any issues with the availability of equity, um, but what often gets spooked is lenders' concerns about pricing and equity participants unwilling to make up the difference with equity or mezzanine lenders not being available at that point in time. Um, But the frothiness of pricing today isn't really that different than it had been at other points when we've taken the pulse of the market. What's interesting, though, is the relationship between 
cap rates. And whenever I speak about stuff, I always say, I'm not going to use the word cap rate, and then I do it anyway. But the relationship between cap rates and treasury yields in a period when the 10-year treasury keeps falling, the entire treasury curve keeps falling, and in fact, there's an inversion right now in the treasury curve. Um, So when you look at it, real estate is a total return asset class. It's an income-producing asset class, and it's an alternative for yield-seeking um, investors. So when the Treasury is as low as it is, you know, the 10 years is as low as it is right now, real estate doesn't look so pricey again, right? So I think you have to realize what influences buyers to buy and what they compare the yield on real estate to. And in a period of falling interest rates like we're having, um, real estate often doesn't look as expensive as it may be. Sure, and it's an important point, although you know, we may think of ourselves as being an environment in which interest rates are rising. That really is largely or, or you know, predominantly a reference to what's happening at the short end of the yield curve. And the, you know, the Fed controls the Fed funds target rate, uh, but the further out we go on that yield curve, as you mentioned, you know, the Fed exerts something that looks a little bit more like influence rather than control. And we have seen that flattening uh, of the yield curve. Those long-term rates that may be the more relevant numbers for the real estate industry haven't moved you know, to nearly the same degree as what we've seen happen with you know fed policy at the short end now you did mention you know the the debt side of the market all important for real estate uh what are you seeing are, are the banks still out there active lending any concerns about um you know that policy makers or regulators might be exerting because of increased exposure to real estate no that you know and that's obviously going to very institution by institution as the regulators come in and do their stress tests and do their you know examinations of lending institutions what's interesting though is you can't underestimate the importance of securitized financing in the marketplace so you know when the treasury curve starts moving around somewhat capriciously for a variety of reasons, and spreads may widen too much to blow up uh, a prospective CMBS issuance. That could be something that chills the market, but we haven't really seen that. We see the CMBS market continuing to chug along, and in fact, the lower the Treasury curve goes, um, AAA-rated CMBS paper starts looking attractive again because you get a premium over Treasuries, and you can manage the risk. So, I think that the um, finance market for real estate still remains there um, as yields fall. Um, life insurance companies that like to lend against real estate on a long-term basis start liking real estate again because um, it's an opportunity for them to enhance yield as well. Um, so everything seems to in the ecosystem seems to be um, working, and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm as cautiously I hate saying cautiously optimistic, but I'll, two things I said I never said, and I already did it. But I'm as cautiously optimistic today as I have been in the past, and that's not my view. That's the view that we collect when we do the research that that we collect. The the real question is, and you and I talked about this six months ago, where are we in this expansion? And we're we're surpassing the magic uh, 120 month mark, which would be the longest economic expansion we've had in U.S. history. And as we break through that point, um, there's probably the right balance of headwinds and tailwinds, but probably net tailwinds for the U.S. economy. The thing that does concern us is whether or not slowdowns in other countries can become a contagion that slips into the United States. 
Right. So is is that something that you foresee as a real possibility as we look to the latter half of the year? Um, I, I probably not, Sam. And what's interesting is um, when we were talking before we went on air, you mentioned my uh, multiple appearances on Fox Business Network. One of the things I've said on their air a lot is you can't lose sight of the fact that there's $11 trillion worth of sovereign debt that has a negative yield. And the bigger culprits there are Germany, the Bund, and Japan. So um, on the one hand, is the slowing of those economies that's you know grinding down their central banks to have negative yields on their ten years, their version of the ten-year treasury. Um, but on the other hand, it's the fact that those yields are low. The U.S. Um, yield is not, and capital is continuing to flow into the United States, um, which you know you know is fuel for the engine of more economic expansion. Um, so. Um, It's a delicate balance, but as I said earlier, I think if you look at the U.S. economy on a net headwind, tailwind basis, there's probably still more net tailwinds. One of the few headwinds is economic slowing around the globe with our trading partners, but uh, net-net is still a very, very strong, robust consumer in the United States driving our economy. Right. So, you know, we are in a sort of a, let's say, a complex geopolitical environment. Uh, any particular concerns about the way in which trade relationships uh, might ultimately uh, you know, impact the outlook for the economy in the latter half of this year? Sounds like um, you may be expecting that things will play out in a way that uh, is favorable uh, or neutral uh, for the United States, uh, but that at least thus far, it's sort of it's not had a significant and negative impact on us. Yeah, and you know, obviously the Fed is sort of walking that tightrope too. Um, you know, as it relates to whether or not they want to become a little bit more dovish because they're worried that uh, trade tensions are slowing um, economic expansion in the United States. I think you have to take um, the Chinese, um, the China-U.S. trade negotiations, and put them in their own category, and then put everything else in a different category. Um, the recent um, dust-up um, with Mexico really didn't have anything to do with trade. It had to do with immigration policy and tariffs, which are generally something that's used in trade negotiations, were used for an alternative purpose. And that situation, for the time being, looks like it resolved itself. But I think it put tariffs on uh, everybody's radar screen as being something that could slow economic growth. Um, the U.S.-China situation, and from the analysts that I talk to frequently that are a lot closer to that situation than me, the thing you can't overlook is the relative weakness of the Chinese economy, uh, and I say relative, relative to its past, and how their consumer is slowing, um, and their industrial production seems to be slowing, and how they actually probably need us way more than they want to acknowledge they need us. So um, I think there's ultimately a solution for the U.S.-China trade negotiations. I think this administration has incentives and motivations to try to do something prior to the general election so that they can claim a win. What I worry about is since the USMCA, which is the U.S., Canada, and Mexico trade agreement, has not been put for a vote before the House, um, I don't know if we'll actually have an inked deal there. Um, and that just sort of highlights the sort of the political um, you know, gridlock that we have and whether or not these trade deals can actually move forward because we can't ratify them.
Yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm Sam Channon, and you're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour here on SiriusXM Business Radio. It's our mid-year real estate outlook. My guest this half hour is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-chair of the Urban Land Institute PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Mitch, you know, talking about sort of the China-U.S. relationship, um, the trade relationship, sort of you know being sort of a negotiation unto itself and a lot of what we see happening with our other trade partners perhaps being in a different basket. You know, our other guests have commented that while a lot of folks around the globe are not enamored of U.S. politics um, and of uh, our current engagement strategy, let's say, uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, impacting negatively uh, their perceptions of U.S. real estate as um, as a great investment opportunity and the capital still flowing in. Are, are there really t- is there really a divide here? Where on one hand, folks again you know, may not like what they see you know, politically with the United States, but as an investment opportunity, they're certainly not shying away. I think that the if you, if they get past um, the headlines, which may be troubling, and they look at the cash flow model of the underlying asset, um, I think they realize that um, you know just from a fundamentals perspective, we haven't meaningfully added to supply. Uh, in this country, at least since the global financial crisis, uh, demand it remains robust for virtually um, all of the real estate food groups, perhaps with the exception of retail. And um, cash flows continue to grow. Um, and if you're an investor uh, and you're, you know, purely looking at it from a capitalistic perspective, I think you you look past the the, the politics and um, look at the underlying asset. And by the way, Sam, it wouldn't be the first time that foreign investors weren't enamored with an administration in the United <laughs> States or our politics, and they continue to buy, you know, U.S. real estate. So, yeah. um, point um, very well taken. You know, as compared to you know two thousand and eight and two thousand nine, certainly sort of you know coming up on this ten year milestone is a point of reflection for a lot of people. Uh, you know, my sense is that you know on the debt side of it, you know, we don't see. You know, uh, you know, lending that is as uh, aggressive. Um, the are, are we better prepared for for a downturn in our industry? Not only because of your relative restraint in in the structure of the deals, but uh, to your point, you know, we have not seen a significant increase in supply. Um, I, listen, I, I you could probably go institution by institution yep. and find the the ones that are more aggressive than others. But net, net, net underwriting standards of commercial real estate, underwriting standards of residential real estate remain um, incredibly strong. One could argue that they think pricing for this loan or that loan looks a little aggressive. But at the end of the day, the discipline around underwriting is way stronger. And it's actually, you mentioned the reflection point. I, I am amazed because it's the first time in, in my three plus decades in this business that real estate folks are looking in the rearview mirror and remembering the past as they make decisions about the future. Um, and I remember just coming out of multiple, you know, crises in real estate or recessions. They move forward as if they had no institutional memory of what happened in the past. Um, I think the global financial crisis was enough of a game changer institutionally that those institutions remember it 
and it has altered the way in which they do business uh, going forward so that they don't get caught in that game of economic musical chairs again. And I think that that's the, that's the, the big takeaway. Um, you could point to an institution and say they're a little cuckoo and they shouldn't be making the loans that way. But on balance, the industry is exercising more discipline. And I don't know if you've financed or refinanced a home uh, in the, you know, since the global financial crisis, but boy, that is a difficult process. And the single-family mortgage business remains as complicated and difficult to, to get approvals as ever. Oh, yeah. You know, refinancing, which I did to take advantage of, you know, historically low interest rates um, with significantly more equity in my home than I had when I bought it, a much more onerous process uh, than uh, than when I was going in the first time to just get the mortgage um, and, and had uh, you know, no equity to speak of. Um, but such as such as the world. You know, one of the things that uh, we had uh, talked about last time, because it has been such a point of focus for the industry uh, over the last year, and I want to get your sense of sort of what's happened with this. Have we seen momentum, or is it just as much sort of the hot? discussion topic of the day uh, are, are opportunity zones. Um, I know that, Servio, again, when we were chatting in January, it was, you know, the, the industry's dialogue was really focused uh, on, on this. You know, for the audience, give them a bit of background again. What are opportunity zones and, and where is the industry's thinking on this today? What's interesting is it's yet another uh, occasion where the Internal Revenue Code was used as a tool to promote a, a, a type of investment. Um, interestingly enough, if you go back into history, uh, the Internal Revenue Code was the thing that gave rise to real estate investment trusts. Actually, President Eisenhower signed a relatively innocuous piece of legislation that had buried in it a couple of paragraphs, which gave rise to real estate investment trusts. Um, so, opportunity zones are bigger than that in terms of the the attention that it got um, at the time, but. Um, it's complicated because um, in order to get the benefits on lower um, um, taxable gains on sales um, of real estate that are in a deemed opportunity zone, you need to hold those assets for prescribed holding periods or at a minimum of prescribed holding period. And uh, so basically you could have tax-free sales uh, or, or seemingly tax-free sales if you held the asset long enough if it was in an opportunity zone. So that was done to create an incentive for people to invest in these areas and keep the money there for a while and not trade the assets. The problem is that's not necessarily the way that real estate investors behave. Real estate investors pour capital in when there's an opportunity to pour capital in. They love tax incentives, but they're going to want to pull it out when the market suggests is the right time to pull it out. So you may have a misalignment in some areas between what makes sense from an economics perspective but, or versus what makes sense from an uh, opportunity zone a tax regulatory perspective. And that's what I think the capital that's lining up um, pretty seriously and significantly for opportunity zone funds, they're trying to figure out how to strike the right balance between the time horizon that makes sense from the tax code perspective versus the time horizon that makes sense from an economic perspective. Um, but um, there is a tremendous amount of interest in it, and I think it's in line with the expectation, which is find those places um, where we need to really build out communities. Um, and it's in line with the whole public-private partnership nature of infrastructure, which is these communities need more housing, they need more real estate stock, they need the infrastructure that supports that, and you use the Opportunity Zone uh, designation as a way to make that happen.
Yeah. So relative to the amount of dialogue that we see in the industry around Opportunity Zones, how would you characterize the amount of capital that we've actually seen deployed? Um, I haven't seen as much capital deployed as I've seen funds talking about formation and those um, fund sponsors hitting the road trying to line up the capital for those funds. Uh, and I've seen, you know, big numbers, you know, you know, in the billions range of folks looking to raise funds. Um, so I think the, the capital is there. The sponsors are certainly interested, but haven't seen as much activity on, on the ground floor, let's put it that way, in terms of construction. But it's still early. Don't forget the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was signed late in 2017. The regulations are still sort of dripping out of Treasury in terms of how it's all going to work. And trust me, capital's not going to line up until they know exactly what the rules are. So it's still really, really early. I hate baseball metaphors. Third thing I said I hate. Um, but we're in the Which first. inning are we in, Mitch? Exactly. But for <laughs> opportunity zones, I think we're in the first, uh, we're in the first inning. Um, okay. And, and you know, one of the sort of policy goals. Practice, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> one of the policy goals, you know, d- depending on sort of you know, who you're talking to, has certainly been to you know, see uh, capital find its way into communities that have been underserved by capital, you know, in the in the past or up to now. Um, the uh, but you know that when we look at sort of area what. Um, tracts have been designated as opportunity zones, there's a real range there. I mean, there are deeply underserved communities uh, that sometimes fall within an opportunity zone. And there are some that are, you know, maybe gentrifying, maybe, you know, fairly uh, you know, good performing or, or, or well-performing neighborhoods. Uh, when we look at the different strategies that are being put out there by the, the funds being raised, uh, you know, is any of it finding its way or is any of it likely to find its way to sort of those most underserved communities? And again, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of, you know, you can create these incentives, but ultimately there are real estate investors uh, you know, who are going to act like real estate investors. You would think that the most underserved communities would have the longest hold periods in order to basically see the profitability that they would expect in their cash flow model, right? So those would be the ones that you would think capital would gravitate towards the most quickly because they want to get that clock running and the 10-year hold may line up perfectly with, you know, up for the economic deal that may line up perfectly with the 10-year hold that's needed from the tax perspective, right? Um, it, although I think at the the end of the day or the beginning of the day, you have entrepreneurs who are making entrepreneurial decisions. And you also said something about gentrifying neighborhoods. There are some neighborhoods in there like, you know, in Brooklyn that are deemed to be opportunity zones. And the fact of the matter is there's no shortage of capital. You don't need incentives to have capital chase, you know, land development opportunities and gentrification plays in Brooklyn. But you do need them in Cleveland and in Detroit and in New Orleans and a lot of other cities um, or Akron, Ohio, that is that are considerably deprived of capital. And that was the underlying intention. So um, I would hope um, that the capital finds the most underserved uh, areas and create those opportunities in those opportunity zones. Um, but I think real estate players are going to behave like real estate players in many respects. Yeah. What do you see as the biggest risks to the outlook for us right now? Uh, in the marketplace, um, I, I, I use the term capricious uh, just because I like SAT words, um, behavior of the treasury curve. That's the thing that frightens me the most, right? So if 
you know, Chairman Powell on October 2nd made a comment about where we were at the Fed funds rate and how far away we were from quote-unquote neutral. And that sent equity markets into a free fall, including the Christmas Eve uh, massacre. Um, as soon as the Fed started changing its tone, and the Fed, by and large, has been pretty good at communicating, uh, look what happened to the equity markets, at least at the beginning of uh, this calendar year. What I worry about is comments from the Fed causing the Treasury curve to jockey around a lot with like 50 basis point swings and having that um, cause real estate capital markets to, you know, just hit the pause button because they don't know where interest rates are going to land and what yield expectations are going to be. To me, in the short term, Sam, that's the biggest threat that I see to real estate. Um, long, long term, I worry about a shrinking workforce and I worry about slowing of demand for real estate because of the demographics in the United States and because of automation, maybe shrinking demand for real estate. I have a lot of things in my head that justify all of that, um, but I think there's a long-term risk around demand for real estate. Um, and in the short term, I think it's all uh, financial engineering that I, that I worry about. Now, should I read into your comments about the Fed as a suggestion that we should somehow limit their independence? No. All right, good. Just making sure. No, if that was a test, Professor, hopefully I got an A. Mitch, uh, <laughs> you get an A every time. There we go. Uh, if speaking you were only of teaching which, when I was in school, I probably would have paid attention in class. But uh, well, we are actually just about out of time. But I hope that we'll get you back here soon. I, I'd love to. It's always a pleasure, Sam. Thanks so much. That was Mitch Rochelle, a partner at PwC and chairman, uh, co-chairman of the ULI PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Uh, Mitch, thanks again for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in for this special edition of the Real Estate Hour. If you have a question, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'd like to thank my producer, Patty Hall, as well as Dana Cash, who's been standing in for Patty today. I'd also like to thank my sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, and my head of research, Jonathan O'Kane. I'm Sam Chandon, and you've been listening to Business Radio's Mid-Year Real Estate Outlook on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.